0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: I
3: have you loud and clear.
4: <laughs> hello, hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And
5: that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or. Space.
4: space. Time. The brain. the universe
5: Hello, now I hope you've got your boarding passes at the ready because to celebrate 50 years of the jumbo jet 100 years of the Royal Air Force and the recent arrival of the brand new F-35 fighter jet in the UK we're taking a flight through the history and science of fighter planes
4: Plus, in the news, a new way to fight cancer by giving people cancer. How virtual reality can combat a fear of heights and will shed some light on the hearing aid of the future. I'm Izzy Clark.
5: I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, first, if someone told you they wanted to treat your cancer by injecting you with more cancer cells, you'd be right to be sceptical. But that's exactly what researchers at Harvard Medical School are doing, because they're exploiting a natural tendency of cancer cells to home back in on their parent cancer deposits or to join up with sites of cancer spread, which are called metastases.
4: Khalid Shah has developed a way to genetically engineer harvested tumour cells to make them churn out therapeutic death signals so that when the cells are re-injected into the body, they seek out tumours and trigger nearby cancer cells to kill themselves. As a safeguard, the modified cancer cells also have an inbuilt kill switch so they can be terminated once their job is done.
3: One of the major hurdles for advanced stage cancer is that they're localised, but they also move from one organ to the other. And they also can move from the other organ back to the same place where they originated. And and we can sort of repurpose the tumour cell homing properties for delivery of targeted therapeutics to the primary tumour cells.
5: So are you saying then, Khalid, that what you can do is take a cell from a tumour that wants to get back to its home tumour and do the equivalent of, say, brainwashing a terrorist and releasing that terrorist back onto the streets to lead you back to where he came from or she came from.
3: Yes, you're right. So we can actually tame a cancer cell. We actually re-engineered it to produce therapeutics and then kill the original tumour cell.
5: How on earth did you do that?
3: So we use two properties. So let's assume you have two cancer patients. One has a cancer resistant to a particular drug and one has a cancer sensitive to a particular drug. So what we did is we took the tumor cell that is resistant to a particular drug and engineered it to release therapeutics that can kill the tumor that is sensitive to that drug. The second approach is that we took the patient's own cells which are sensitive to a particular therapy and we gene edited its surface receptors to make them resistant first then engineered them with therapeutics and a kill switch so with the therapeutic we can kill the original cell and with the kill switch we can kill the re-engineered cell.
5: This is neat. So basically you're using the natural homing behaviour of cancer cells to get into tumours that have spawned cancer cells that are trying to spread around the body. When they go back into the tumour, they detonate an explosion that's going to kill the parent tumour. But you've also put a safeguard in there, which is that you can kill the cells you're putting back in because you've got this additional, as you're dubbing it, kill switch engineered in there.
3: Yes. So the beauty of the kill switch is also that it can be imaged um, by PET imaging, so we can actually track the re-engineered cell in the body.
5: How do you endow the cancer cell with the ability to kill the parent cancer, but itself not be killed by the the toxic cargo it's carrying?
3: Cancer cells have these unique signatures on their surface that make them cancer cells and one of them is the death receptors on the surface of the tumour cell. So what we did with gene editing technique is that we knocked out the receptors on the surface of the tumour cell so it's not killed by the therapeutic it's producing.
5: And these cells that you infuse, can they access all areas? So can they both go to the parent tumour that spawned a person's disease and it spread And could they potentially also therefore access the metastases where it's spread to?
3: Yes, so we've tested this in mice and we've shown that if you inject them into the primary tumor site, they can eradicate the primary tumor cells. And we've also injected them systemically in one of the arteries that leads to the brain and we can show that they can track and can kill metastatic tumor cells in the brain as well.
5: It might worry some people though the prospect that you're injecting people with not just a genetically modified cell but a genetically modified cancer cell. Are there no risks associated with doing this?
3: Absolutely. I don't think it will be taken without a grain of salt because you're putting cancer cells back into the patient. So I think the first indication would be going into tumors which have an unmet need that where we haven't done anything for the last two decades. One of the prominent tumors is the brain tumor where the survival is between 12 to 18 months post-diagnosis. So yes, if we can assure people that we have the engineered tumour cells under control and we can kill them anytime I think the first indication would be in the most unmet need tumours. And is there no risk that
5: the infused modified cells could go rogue and they'll undo the kill switch you've engineered into them and then you've actually given that person an even worse prognosis?
3: No, because we use lentiviral vectors that integrate into the genome of the cell. So whatever we have engineered, the gene that we have engineered is incorporated into the genome of the cell. So there's very low chance of these cells getting rogue and leaving the gene out.
5: Wonderful example of fighting fire with fire. That was Khalid Shah there and he's at Harvard and the work came out in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Now, what do you do with old and dead gadgets like TVs and computers and phones? Most people just throw them away and many of them end up in landfill. But on a global scale, are we potentially throwing away a fortune?
4: Well, a lot of people think so, including Sydney-based material scientist Vina Sachwala, who's pioneering what she dubs an urban mine, and that's at the University of New South Wales, to recover precious metals from discarded gadgets.
5: Well, to help us run over some of the numbers is tech expert and angel investor Peter Cowley. So, Peter, what sorts of gadgets are we talking about here? And what sorts of potentially precious materials might they contain?
6: So, hello, Chris. Uh, I think we're primarily talking about smartphones here, uh, although the academic mentions CRTs, cathode ray tubes. If you take a smartphone, the, the build cost for high-end ones is probably about two or $300, but the low-end is only $40. The total amount of uh, recyclable materials, the biggest of all uh, in terms of value, is, is gold, but this, on average only 31 milligrams in each phone, which works out as about $1.20. Silver, um, much more, about 150 milligrams. Copper, 15 grams, but copper is pretty cheap, you know, talking about nine cents. Per phone, so if you take everything out of the phone, you're only talking about dollar thirty or something like that from the whole lot. The best use of a phone is actually to refurbish it and to recycle it and put it back into use, rather than to break it down. I think.
4: How much is it all worth? The materials that we're looking at here.
6: Well, the lady in the in Australia has come up with a number of about three hundred thousand pounds. Can I just
5: clarify? What do you mean by three hundred thousand pounds? Uh, this was Global. the capital
6: cost of the equipment right. to recycle. So that's what cost her to start doing this. Exactly. To produce some equipment, which I think is probably based on the furnace which will then separate out the metals if it can do. So you, you need about 100 phones an hour. And of course 100 phones an hour quite a lot of transport involved with that sort of thing. So is that worth it? I'm not sure. There's another, there's a wonderful robot called DAISY, presumably named after 2001: Space Odyssey, HAL, if you remember when it was being switched off, it sang, sang DAISY, uh, that Apple had produced to disassemble phones. Now when whether that's got, you know, what it's done for, for the reasons I'm not sure, whether it's actually for recycling or not.
5: So you're saying there's a £300,000 upfront capital cost in setting up your infrastructure to strip out phones and recover the materials. So if you're reckoning you're getting pence per phones worth of precious metals back, there are seven and a half billion phones on Earth, though, and that's just phones. So there there there's lots and lots of materials that could potentially be scavenged this way. Do you not think it's a viable business model?
6: That depends on a number of factors, doesn't it? it? It depends on bringing back the device to somewhere where it's processed. There is something called the We Directive in Europe, which means a manufacturer has to take back the device and then recycle it or dispose of it correctly. And that's been around about 50 years now. And I have an electronics business that has to do that occasionally. So there's getting it back, the capital equipment cost of uh, the equipment to do this, the processing cost, etc., Refining it and then redistributing back into the supply chain. If you take the phone, probably you've got to say a dollar thirty out of it. You know, dollar thirty is going to cost you. Best part of that, just to get the phone back to a processing plant, I would think. So another factor you should take into account: the landfill costs are in the UK ninety pounds a ton. I'm not quite sure what the volume of a ton is, but actually, because there are about eight or ten thousand phones in a ton, you're talking about a penny <laughs> <laughs> costs of actually disposing of it, which is completely the wrong thing to do. Clearly, I mean, I'm absolutely positive about the circular economy and recycling. But
5: How do you actually get the stuff out of the phone? What is involved in that? Well, said I have, a, I have a phone here, f- here
6: in front of me, which obviously the listeners can't see, which is an It doesn't order. look like it would work very well anymore. No, no, it's <laughs> just, <the laughs> it doesn't. Like
7: it it, it, it's actually
6: <laughs> an iPhone 3, this, so it's a long time ago. And if you look at it, the amount of gold in it is really very small. What would be very useful, of course, the most expensive item in the phone is the screen. But you can only do that by recycling it. It's what the lady talking about in Australia is taking the precious metals out of it. Mm. There's no doubt that as a set of component parts, it's got more value than the raw materials inside oh, it. Oh, really? Mm. Really? So it's not worth it just, just can be grinding reused. it
5: up and getting the bits out? You actually want the components? I don't
6: believe it is because the if gold was 40 times more, and it's $40,000 a kilo anyway, if it was 40 times more expensive, then it would be different. Because one figure I saw was
5: that uh, if you look at how much gold comes out of the ground um, in terms of how much you have to move to get a gram of gold or so, i was in kalgoorlie in western australia i watched trucks going by with 250 tons of ore on board and they told me it can take up to four of those to get one golf ball sized hunk of gold at the end of the day yes whereas these gadgets some statistics are suggesting actually the the recovery rate might be much much higher yeah that's like like 350 grams per tonne of phones than nine grams per tonne of ore
6: Uh, no i think that figure is based on crt's cathode ray tubes i think her Mm. figures are based on five grams of gold in the crt crt's were stopping these are cathode ratio televisions in yes. you know, old-fashioned televisions, televisions yeah. and, and game arcade machines and uh, air traffic controllers probably still use them as well so is this a is it a no from you then peter you won't be sorry i'm out <laughs> I'm out, yes. <laughs> I would not invest in it. Okay, Chris, you've got to be
5: there. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Vina. Peter is not going to invest. It's a no from him. Thank you very Thank much. You very Peter much. Cowley, uh, Angel Investor and uh, our tech correspondent here on The Naked Scientist.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Izzy Clark. Still to come, a way to overcome your fears of heights without leaving your armchair. And we'll be taking a flight through time as we explore the 100-year evolution of the fighter aircraft.
5: Before that, though, you might want to hear this, because scientists in Germany have invented what they're dubbing the future hearing aid. It uses light to deliver information about sound to your nervous system. I spoke to Markus Jeschke, who's at the University Medical Center in Göttingen, and he's one of the developers.
7: So normally sounds that reaches our ears are transmitted through what's called a tympanic membrane. So it's a small membrane that Uh, uses the vibration that's caused by the sound and is transmitted into the structure in our inner ears called the cochlea. Here, there's very tiny hair cells who transmit this movement into electrical signals that our brain can understand. Close to the base of the cochlea neurons and hair cells preferentially respond to high-frequency sounds, whereas at the apex or the tip of the cochlea, neurons and hair cells preferentially respond to low-frequency sounds.
5: And when someone has hearing impairment, what has gone wrong with that system you just described? So the most
7: common form is a loss of sensory hair cells. This is usually caused by very loud sounds. This can also be caused by antibiotics and a couple of other factors.
5: And how do the present generation of hearing aids surmount the loss of those hair cells then?
7: The current version which is the electrical cochlear implant uses electrical current to stimulate the auditory neurons that are sitting behind the hair cells. These nerves are still excitable so you can activate them by inserting a small cable with multiple electrodes that are sitting along different parts of the cochlea and they stimulate different parts of the auditory nerve which is responsible for different pitches.
5: So the cochlear implants listening to sounds coming to you from outside and when it hears a high frequency it sends electricity to the wire that's stimulating the high frequency bit of your cochlea and the converse if you hear a low frequency it's sending signals preferentially down the wire that stimulates the low frequency bit.
7: That is absolutely correct.
5: So what's wrong with that? Why do we need a next-generation hearing aid?
7: There's actually nothing wrong with that per se. It's the most successful neuroprosthesis we have, and it's an amazing success story. It allows around half a million people that are implanted with cochlear implants to understand speech in quiet environments. However, these patients still have problems understanding speech and noise and typically do not appreciate music. The reason for that is hair cells in the cochlea sit in a very saline environment and that means that if you stimulate a certain part of the cochlea this electrical stimulation spreads to neighboring parts of the cochlea and co-activates them. In other words it's as if you were playing the piano with your forearms.
5: Yes you're going to take down lots of notes at the same time
7: rather than one
5: finger one note. Yes. So what can you do that's better?
7: One way to do this is to use light light can be much more precisely confined so you could use a very small dot of light which is just a few microns which is on the order of single neurons in our brain and this allows many many more frequency channels or individual stimulation channels and this in turn could then mean that you have access to the individual keys on the piano
5: so what you're saying is you could thread like a a miniature string of fairy lights down the inside of the cochlea rather than just individual electrodes and illuminate bits of the cochlea but how do you make it sensitive to light because at the moment it's sensitive to electricity
7: that's correct in order to do this we use what's called optogenetics so what we're doing is we're packing the genetic information of if you want light switches into the neurons of the auditory nerve and therefore make them light-sensitive. So what they will do is, upon light stimulation, these light switches will activate and in turn activate the auditory nerve neurons. And does it work? It sounds ingenious. It does work indeed, and that's the cool thing about this. Um, We have been able to show that in Mongolian gerbils, we can actually use these light switches and put them into the auditory nerve of adults and show that upon light stimulation in the cochlea, these animals actually can use this light information to perform a behavioral task. So in other words, these animals now hear light.
5: And you can prove that they do genuinely respond as though they're hearing a sound.
7: That's right. We trained animals to respond to auditory stimuli before they were actually optically stimulated. And they learned to respond to a certain sound and react on this. And upon light stimulation, after they've learned this auditory behaviour with sounds, a few animals transferred this to light stimulation. Do you think this could be translated to humans? That's actually our goal, yes. Of course, there's a lot to be done before we can actually safely try this in humans. But in general, the idea is that this could work in humans, yes.
4: Well, that's good to hear. Markus Jeschke there, and that work was published this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine.
7: You normally in the
5: past had to take some pretty strong drugs in order to see sounds, didn't you? Thankfully that's going to change. Now picture the scene. You're swaying on a rickety rope bridge slung some 500 feet above a canyon and a gust of wind sends you swinging alarmingly. And those creaking noises coming from the supporting ropes don't have you very reassured. Am I making you nervous? Well, if so, you might be one of the approximately 20% of us who suffer from an irrational fear of heights.
4: Surprisingly, though, few of us actually seek any treatment for this, but this could soon change because a team at Oxford University are developing a VR or a virtual reality therapist that could see you facing your fears from the comfort and safety of your living room. Isabel Cochran heard how from Daniel Freeman.
8: When somebody's overcoming a mental health problem, what you want them to be able to do is go into the situations that trouble them and feel fine about it. But normally, when you have a mental health difficulty, for example, you're feeling socially anxious, going into a room full of people is difficult. If you have a fear of heights, going near a height is difficult. And what we can do in VR is, is present these situations and train the person in the moment how to overcome their difficulty. So
9: how does this VR compare with the treatment someone with a fear of heights, for example, would normally get?
8: In many ways, the treatment we provide in VR is very similar to what you would get if you were seeing a highly skilled therapist doing the best psychological treatment. Because what we've done is tried to automate the provision of really good treatment in vr so you don't have the difficulties of trying to find a therapist but in vr we also do some stuff that you can't do with a real therapist we do things by virtual heights that push the fears a bit more than you might in the real world so we have like a platform that goes out in the middle of a large atrium where you rescue a cat you wouldn't do this in real life therapy but can do it in vr and when you can conquer these things in vr then it makes everyday situations around heights a lot easier
9: Even just hearing about that platform makes me feel a little bit queasy, I have to say.
8: (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's hard work. The interesting thing about VR is that the people, you know, with fear of heights, they are sweating and it takes a lot of you know, courage and determination to do it. But at the same time, they're also smiling because they know it's not real. That's the beauty of VR. You know it's not real. You do things that in the real world you would struggle with. And yet you also have this added delight of finding out if you conquer it in VR, it transfers to the real world.
9: How realistic does it actually have to be in order to trigger this feeling of fear?
8: It doesn't take much in VR to trigger a fear of heights. Oxford VR are very keen on making sure that things are incredibly engaging and appealing. So we're going for a a reasonable amount of realism and we're also putting lots of fun elements in. Mental health treatments traditionally can be less than fun and we're trying to make something that's really engaging and appealing for people to help them overcome their problems. Even the sort of rescuing the cat from the tree, many people really quite enjoy that task. When I do it, you know, it certainly makes me very (laughs) anxious going out you're 10 stories up, basically, on a plank um, trying to pick up a cat who's meowing at you but people can also see the sort of the comedic value of this as well
9: what else do you get people to do
8: so we do a bit of xylophone playing right by the edge of the virtual height for example and at the end when you've done all the sort of therapy tasks you get a chance to ride a virtual whale around the atrium
9: so that's your reward how well does it work
8: Really well. Um, Even I was surprised how good the results are. The average reduction in fear of heights was two-thirds in patients with the VR treatment, which is extraordinarily good.
9: How are you measuring that?
8: We use three different clinical assessment scales, which can be validated against reactions at real heights. In other work we've done, we actually take people to real heights before and after, and you can just see the change.
9: Do you think we'll be able to use this for other phobias? So for example, insects, I think is quite a common one.
8: Yes. I mean, I guess at Oxford, our ambitions are much greater than just phobias. We think it could be applied to most mental health conditions. We're working on a project that uses VR automated delivery of psychological therapy for patients with severe mental health problems, such as schizophrenia. There are very few mental health conditions where you cannot see VR as one aspect of care. A lot of patients with severe mental health problems through current treatment still have quite a few problems. They're often mistrustful, they might be hearing voices, they might be feeling depressed or socially anxious. The end result of all of this is that when they go out into the real world, for example, around other people, everyday social situations, they get very frightened. And that means actually what they tend to do is withdraw from life, stay indoors. So again, what we're dealing with here is helping people go back into everyday situations and learn that they're safe and that they can cope.
9: So how are you planning to make this available? Is this something that you're planning to use in the context of clinics, for example? Is it just something that anyone will be able to download onto their smartphone or their VR device at home?
8: Well, it's a good question. And and I think the answer may change over the years what we plan to do is to put it into NHS Psychological Therapy Service so the equipment is there. But of course, as the old kit becomes more widely available at home and it becomes lighter, more affordable and technically a bit better, it will be likely be in people's homes and you can envisage in the future people also doing these sorts of treatments in the comfort at home whenever they want.
4: Very exciting work there. That was Daniel Freeman speaking with Isabel Cochrane and that study was published in The Lancet Psychiatry.
5: There are some books that are so important that they revolutionise science. For physics, that pivotal text is Sir Isaac Newton's The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, which was published in this month in 1687. So to celebrate its 331st anniversary, Izzy visited another important scientist to find out about the Principia and the man behind it.
10: So, you're doing something on Newton and the Principia? Yes. Yes, okay. So we were... Well, I'm Martin Rees, a Strummer Royal and a Professor at Cambridge University.
4: Now, the Principia was first published in 1687 and it was essentially the foundations of classical mechanics. So, what exactly did it entail?
10: Well, it was a wonderful mathematical achievement, and he used immense mathematical talents to codify lots of ideas about the laws of motion and gravity. And his book, The Principia, is famously in three parts. The first gives his famous laws of motion. The first is that everything continues in its state of rest or uniform motion unless something pushes it, as it were. The second said that if something is acted on by a force, then the amount by which it accelerates Depends on that force and on his mass. And the third law said that if something pushes, there's a pushback. So what's called action and reaction are equal and opposite. So those are the actual laws. But what's impressive is the way he used mathematics to apply those laws, particularly to the orbits of the and uh, planets.
4: Now, those laws of motion may take you back to your high school physics lessons. But why are these so important?
10: Well, of course, until that time, we didn't really understand. I mean, the laws of motion, which were believed by most people since classical times, were those of Aristotle, which were that uh, everything stopped moving unless you stop pushing it. And that, of course, is true of most things. <laughs> but nonetheless, Newton realised that in practice, if something is not moving in a steady way something is uh, pushing it or something is dragging it.
4: And that something would be a force. So that's part one of the Principia covered. The second discusses how bodies move under gravity and resisting forces, and the third applies Newton's theories of gravity to detailed problems like the motion of the moon and planets.
10: Well, of course, he was the first person to realize that the force that makes the apple fall and holds us on the ground is the same as the force which holds the moon in its orbit around the Earth and the Earth in its orbit around the Sun. And he was also the first to show in detail how these orbits worked. Of course, it was known that the orbits were not perfect circles, that they were ovals or ellipses. He didn't understand why. And I suppose... The most famous single achievement of Newton in the Principia was to show that if the force of gravity obeyed a so-called inverse square law, which means that uh, it falls off by a factor of four if you go twice as far away, inverse square law, then that force will cause an orbiting body to move in an ellipse with the Source of gravity as a focus. And so he actually showed that this inverse square law of force explained why the orbits had the shape they do.
4: Have you ever tried to read the Principia?
10: Well, it's not an easy read. And in fact, it's interesting that. Newton didn't want it to be an easy read. We must accept that he's probably one of the greatest scientific intellects of all time. But he was a deeply unpleasant character, really. He was solitary and reclusive, and in his later years, he became really very vain and vindictive, and uh, we perhaps should recognise him for his works and not for his character.
4: Yes, definitely quite a controversial (laughs) character. You mentioned he was a recluse. Do you think part of that is to do with the fear of someone might take these ideas from him?
10: Well, he was deeply concerned about priority, and uh, that's why he had long-time disputes. But, of course, what was special about him was not only his brilliance, but his power of concentration. In fact, someone asked him how did he succeed in solving these very difficult problems about gravity and inverse square law, and his reply was by thinking on them continually. He did night and day, and there are all these anecdotes about how he uh, forgot to eat his meals, etc., and continued. This was particularly the case in the two years when he was writing his Principia. And, of course, uh, remember it was written in Latin, and there were later editions, and then there were English translations and French translations, and it became uh, a book which was probably not understood by many people, but it became seen as an archetype for how we can actually understand and see patterns in the world and uh, this led to the idea of a sort of clockwork universe which could in principle be understood by uh, mathematical formulae.
4: That was Astronomer Royal Professor Lord Martin Rees who I caught up with earlier this week.
5: And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories that we've covered this week so far you can do so on our website nakedscientist.com slash podcasts. All the transcripts and the references for the stories are there.
10: The Naked Scientists
0: podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire
5: can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Izzy Clark. And now it's time to take off for the second half of this week's show.
6: British fighting planes engage the enemy in an air battle. The Royal Air Force closing into swift action, leading to the attack.
11: The first of Britain's new F-35 Lightning
6: stealth jets
11: Britain's have landed at raf next generation. Of
6: 1st of Britain's jets now, F-35 then. Lightning stealth jets has landed at RAF Marham in
5: Norfolk. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Air Force, and as you heard there, just last month the newest fighter jet, the F-35 Lightning II, arrived in the UK. So, to celebrate these milestones, we're embarking on the maiden flight of our very own airline, which we're toying with the idea of calling Fly Naked. Or maybe that might send out the wrong signals. We're not sure. While we dispute that, a special announcement from the crew.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, flight F thirty five is now ready for boarding.
10: Please make your way to gate one with passports at the ready.
5: Oh, excuse me. I think that's I think that's my seat, there. Oh, I'm so sorry. Please do do come in. Thank you very much. Welcome
2: aboard the Naked Scientist Airlines. Our in-flight entertainment will consist of a journey through time to learn about the evolution of the fighter plane. Today we will be flying in a Concorde. Although the Concorde is not a fighter plane, many of its features are inspired by military aircraft, including its supersonic shape and its powerful turbojet engine. In contrast, the role of a fighter plane is to take down enemy aircraft, usually in battles called dogfights. Fighters are designed to fly incredibly fast whilst also being highly manoeuvrable. Comfort is not a priority. If you'll indulge me, ladies and gentlemen, the origin of the fighter aircraft is quite interesting. In 1914, the First World War broke out and aeroplanes at this time were made of wood and fabric. These wooden and fabric planes were completely unarmed. Their only purpose was to fly over enemy lines to track the troops and take photographs. It is said that enemy pilots would simply wave at each other as they flew past. However, as the war became more brutal, pilots became less civil and started carrying pistols on board. Some even threw bricks at each other. By 1915, machine guns were mounted to aircraft and thus the fighter was born. Over the next hundred years, some remarkable advancements are made on fighters. We've gone from fabric and wooden wings to the F thirty five lightning, but how did we get there? Stay tuned and you'll find out. Now, passengers, please fasten your seat belts as we prepare for take-off wishing you a pleasant flight here on the naked scientists. <laughs>
4: like a rather large engine which makes me think what does it take to power a fighter or indeed any plane to find out marika ottman went to rolls royce in derby they build about a third of the world's jet engines and historically they've made engines like the iconic merlin that powered the spitfire and they've still got examples of all of them justin burrows is a material scientist with the company
12: So we're in the Rolls-Royce Heritage Centre. What this is, is a chronological exhibition of technologies that the company's been involved with. We've got some piston engines here, so the Merlin. Then we move on to some of our early jet engines. And then we've got our latest large civil gas turbine engine, the Trent Thousand.
0: The forward motion of an aircraft is caused by a force called thrust, which is produced by a propulsion system. In the early fighter planes of World War I and World War II, thrust was produced by propellers.
12: Think of the blades on a propeller like two sides of a screw. So if you think about a screw that you screw into a wall at home, if you turn the screw, it will pull itself into the wall. Well, a propeller kind of works in a similar way. So each of those blades, as you spin them round, they then take the air, push it backwards.
0: Propellers provide a simple and effective way to create thrust. So why don't we see propellers on modern fighters?
12: When we got into World War II, Spitfires were finding that if they went into a steep nosedive, they'd get to or approaching the speed of sound. But what happens when you get there is that the air at that point is very, very hard to move. And the prop simply can't mechanically take the load on it, so it's creating too much drag. And it's also very difficult to have enough power to push the propeller through the air because it becomes very heavy. So it's kind of like trying to spin it through concrete at that point. So the solution to that was to go to jet engines. In
0: 1930, Frank Whittle submitted a patent for the turbojet engine. The development of the jet engine changed aviation entirely. Fighter jets were able to fly faster and higher, speeding past the enemy or around them in dogfights. Justin showed me one of the largest jet engines made to date and took me through how it works.
12: We're looking at a TREP 1000, which is one of our largest civil aircraft engines. And we're standing in front of the fan section. Each one of the blades in here, just to give you an idea, is about six feet long. And there's 80 of them in a conventional set in a jet engine. About 65% of the air from that propeller bypasses the engine, so it goes down the side of it and it it just uses it to push the aircraft forward. About 30 to 35% goes through the centre of the engine and that helps power the turbine section at the back of the engine. So the air that goes down the middle of the uh, engine goes into the compressor section. So all that does is compress the air. It compresses it so well that it raises the temperature to about 700 degrees C, which is pretty hot to start with. At that point, we then mix it with fuel, which in this case is kerosene. We light a match. The temperature of the gas then increases dramatically and the pressure increases. So the turbine then is very clever because it does two things. It extracts energy from that gas, which then drives the fan. The other thing it does is that gas going out the back also adds to the thrust.
0: Aircraft propulsion has advanced exponentially in the past 100 years. So what do we have to look forward to? Justin brought me to the Technology Center to give me an exclusive peek into Rolls-Royce's latest technologies.
12: So we're in the uh, technology exhibition building. This is purpose-built for our um, end-user customers. They'll come in here, see some of our new technologies, what we're going to be doing in the future, and they also have the opportunity to look at the uh, current build line as well so they can see engines being made.
0: The current build line includes engines that are actually able to predict when they need maintenance.
12: As our aircraft are flying around, they're sending data to what we call our operations centre. We have a team of engineers looking at that data, and if we've got an aircraft that is displaying a problem or an issue, we can arrange for a repair team to meet the aircraft as soon as it lands with the parts already there, and they can fix the issue, and then there's no disruption to the customer. The other thing we can do is give the data to our manufacturing people and our design teams They can then use that data from service of what happens to components to redesign components so they're more effective when they're in service. So there's kind of a whole feedback loop going on with all the data that we're getting from the aircraft.
0: So what is the future of jet engines?
12: One of the things we're involved with is an engine called Ultrafan, which has two big improvements over the kind of current civil gas turbines. One of them is it has a composite fan, which is lightweight. The other thing is the fan is slightly larger. We've got a gearbox in that engine... And that allows the fan to turn at a slower speed than the turbine. That enables us to deliver a product which gives fewer emissions and it's more effective than our current engine. We're looking at the potential for electric hybrid vehicles. What we then need to look at is energy storage, how we can generate electricity to drive those motors, and or how we can store enough power, enough fuel, if you like, to keep an electric motor driving a propeller.
0: So just to be clear, you're talking about an electric airplane?
12: Yes, we are. It won't be tomorrow, but it might be a few days after that.
0: That was Marika Ottman
4: speaking with Justin Burroughs at Rolls-Royce in Derby.
5: It's me, Chris Smith, with Izzy Clark, and this week we are soaring through the science of flight and fighter
2: aircraft. We'll be cruising at an altitude of 60,000 feet and a speed of 1,000 miles per hour in a few moments' time. We will be moving through the cabin to offer some
5: refreshments. Oh, good. I am feeling rather thirsty. I'm right on cue.
4: I think some snacks have just arrived.
5: And a very beautiful stewardess. Champagne,
1: sir. Caviar, madam.
5: Haven't you got anything better than that? No. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about um, flying is that you have to actually know how your aeroplane works in the first place. It is amazing that aeroplanes even fly. You think of a fully laden A380, for example, there are 800 people plus on there. So we thought we would do an experiment to explain how flight actually works and how aeroplanes and wings work. So who better to ask than kitchen science veteran and uh, actually whiz at making science experiments to show how things actually work? And that's Dave Ansell. Welcome to the programme, Dave.
13: Hello. Hello. What have you brought in? It's got a lot of gadgetry here. I've got a big fan and to model wings and things. But start off thinking about how planes fly is how you stay up in the first place. Everything's being pulled down by gravity. And the fact you're not falling through the floor must mean there's a force pushing you upwards. And at the moment, you're achieving that by applying a force downwards onto the chair. And then Newton's laws mean that every action has an equal opposite reaction. So the chair is then pushing upwards with exactly the same force and holding you up so you don't fall to the center of the Earth very quickly.
5: Right. So how does the wing of an aeroplane create that force, which then
13: leads to the aeroplane being able to stay up in the air and combat gravity, accelerating it downwards? So it must be pushing down on something. And the only thing a plane has got to push down on is the air around it. And the part of the plane which holds it up is, of course, the wing. So I have a model wing here, which is made out of a bent piece of card. And we're going to be wanting to see how the wing is affecting the air moving past it. Now, to get any lift from a wing, you need the wing to be moving through the air. Now, to see that, While it's running around, it was really difficult. So instead, I've got a big fan, which I can turn on and produce air flying past the wing.
5: Right. So we have a bent piece of card, which is curved in the shape of a wing. You have a screwdriver with a ribbon on it, which is going to reveal where the air is going. So talk us through what will happen when we put the wing in front of this large
13: fan. What should we be looking for? In order to stay up, the wing should be pushing the air down. And we should be able to see that by the ribbon behind the screwdriver being pushed downwards.
5: Now, I can understand how that will work with the bottom side of the wing because the wing is higher at the front than the back. So air hitting the wing is going to be deflected downwards. So if you push the air downwards, it's going to push the
13: wing upwards, as Newton's law tells us. What about the top of the wing, though? Does that contribute to the lift? If you get the aerodynamics right, which is an important part of designing a plane, then air will tend to stick to a smoothly curving surface. So with any luck, you will also get the top of the wing deflecting the air downwards and also producing lift. So you get lift from the top of the wing, and because you're pushing air down with the bottom of the wing, you get lift there too. Exactly right.
5: Let's do the experiment then. Now, this is noisy, everyone at home, so we apologise in advance. Here we go.
13: So Dave's turned on his large fan. So at the moment, I've just got the streamer, the ribbon, moving in the air, and it's just going horizontally. Now, if I move the wing down towards it from the top, you should see that that streamer is being deflected downwards, even though it's not actually touching the wing.
5: Yes, indeed. So the streamer is nowhere near the wing. It's underneath the wing, but the the streamer is curving downwards, just like the same shape as the wing. So there's obviously air being pushed downwards by the lower surface of the wing.
13: Exactly right. And similarly, if we bring the wing upwards towards the ribbon from underneath, the air starts to stick to the wing. So the air going to the top is also being deflected downwards, and so pulling up the wing. So if I let go of the wing, it moves upwards, it's producing lift. And one last question for you, Dave, then. What about when a plane flies upside down? When a stunt pilot goes upside down, the plane still flies. How does he do it? It's exactly the same principle. The plane is at an angle, so the air hits the wing at an angle, and it gets deflected downwards, so the air pushes the plane upwards. Are you saying the pilot basically has to modify his flying technique or her flying technique, so the wing is still pushing air downwards? It, basically, the nose of the plane tends to be pointing up a bit more if you're flying upside down than if you're flying horizontally, because they're designed to fly the right way up. High angle of attack, I think, is the correct parlance, isn't it? It certainly helps. Dave
5: Ansell, thank you very much indeed.
4: Now, one particularly impressive aircraft is the Concorde, which is in fact the very plane we've boarded on our journey through the programme. Whilst it's not a military aircraft, Concorde was underpinned and powered by military technology, and it flew faster than many modern fighters.
5: To find out more about these magnificent machines and their capabilities I took a trip to the Imperial War Museum at Duxford to speak with aeroplane aficionado Peter Halford and we met literally sitting in the fastest passenger plane that ever flew. So my seatbelt is securely fastened and the seats aren't terribly comfortable actually for what would have been a very expensive ticket but just please tell us who you are and where we are.
1: I'm Peter Halford. I'm formerly the Science and Technology Education Officer at the Imperial War Museum, where we are today, sitting inside one of the first experimental Concorde supersonic aircraft. This particular one is very special because not only was it one of the test aeroplanes, it itself is the fastest aeroplane to carry passengers there has ever been.
5: When you say it's the fastest, as in this aeroplane has broken all the records...
1: This one has, yeah, and as things stand, it will hold that record forever. Now,
5: what was actually involved in getting Concorde as a fleet off the ground in the first place? How were planes like this one used?
1: This is a passenger aeroplane, but its history and its antecedents are from military aircraft, and military aircraft engines in particular were used in it. It's a combination of people wishing to fly faster, but also using the technology required in warfare. How fast did this plane go? Concords are particularly well known because they're supersonic, faster than the speed of sound, the speed of sound being somewhere around 760 miles an hour. So this would fly faster than that, in fact, twice as fast as that.
5: Let's talk about actually the the aerodynamics of how this aircraft worked. What was special about it? Why was it a game-changer?
11: Well, firstly,
1: because it was using military engines and also the development of the Delta wing, so the, the beautiful shape of the airplane, because that is the most efficient way of having a wing for an airplane like this.
5: Indeed, the wings start halfway along the aircraft and then they extend outwards towards the back, so they're widest right at the back of the
1: aircraft. Yes, in contrast to conventional aircraft of the time because of the speed. With the speed of sound, a tremendous pressure wave builds up. In fact, it's quite a sudden change from smooth air passing over an aerofoil wing through to this shock wave which travels across the wing and it changes the position of the pressure on the wing, making it very difficult to manoeuvre and control.
5: That's if you have a conventional wing. So is that what forced them to have to come up with this very clever design of this swept-back delta wing in order to surmount that problem?
1: Yeah, There are a number of solutions to this difficulty. When the pressure wave builds up, it builds up in a sort of cone shape around the aeroplane from the nose outwards. And if you can make the shape of the front edge of the wing more or less the same angle as the shape of the cone then that pressure wave is not travelling across the wing and not causing these difficulties that come with it.
5: If we wind the clock back right to the early history of when people began to fly, obviously those early aircraft are very different than the one we're sitting in here. Talk us through how those early aircraft worked and how they were engineered.
1: All aeroplanes fly in the similar way. Lift has to be created over the aerofoil wing. But prior to that... People had attempted to make flying machines by flapping, having observed birds. However, for a human being to try and do what a bird does is impossible. But people then, like George Cayley, were observing birds and noticing that they could continue to fly without flapping their wings. So the Air Force shape is a mimic of that.
5: We take it for granted now that the Royal Air Force has aeroplanes which have weapons mounted on them but the early planes didn't have any
1: weapons on them. They were really just for surveillance, weren't they? Yes, aircraft initially were for surveillance. A good way to observe the enemy was to get up to a high vantage point. However, with an observation aeroplane, you need a nice steady platform so that you can look out of the cockpit and take uh, photographs, sketches and notes and so on. So that's the attribute of an observation aircraft. was very different from what we think of as a fighter aircraft now
5: moving time on a bit when did people begin to develop things like the Spitfire?
1: After the First World War there were lots of aeroplanes which had been became redundant people started to use them for racing and there's a particularly well remembered series of air races called the Schneider Trophy and three times an aircraft called the Supermarine S6 won that and the Supermarine Spitfire almost direct development from that.
5: These are all propeller-driven aircraft, though, aren't they? How did the invention of the jet engine change all this?
1: The jet engine was what you might call a step change. Suddenly everything was different. The gas turbine was the big breakthrough, and that happened during the Second World War, simultaneously in Germany and in Britain, uh, with someone called Von O'Hain in Germany and Frank Whittle in this country.
5: And returning to the Concorde that we're sitting in, when this was flying and it's going at twice the speed of sound, what sort of drag was it experiencing? Because there must be enormous amounts of friction from all that air rushing past.
1: Yeah, air is a fluid of lots of little molecules rubbing along the aeroplane. And as we know, friction creates heat. So at the front of the aircraft, it was probably 200 degrees and towards the back it's probably getting on for 100 degrees. It must have changed the length. It certainly did, yeah. It lengthened by about 10 centimetres during its flight. So does that mean you
5: get to your destination a bit quicker then, even though you're getting twice the speed of sound? That was Peter Halford from the Imperial War Museum in Duxford. We were sitting on Concord. A big thank you to the Duxford Aviation Society who allowed us on board. <laughs>
2: So
4: how do pilots know when they need to start descending or where the airport is? It turns out there's a whole host of electronics and instruments on board planes that give pilots critical information. These instruments are especially impressive in the cockpit of fighter jets. Terry Holloway is the Managing Director of the Cambridge Aero Club and joins us now. So, Terry, what are avionics?
11: Well, avionics is a wide range of electronic and electrical equipment which encompasses communication, navigation a flight management system, an autopilot, in the case of military aircraft, weapon systems management, and avionics are in satellites as well. Global positioning systems accurately guide you to where you want to go to.
4: Okay, so what instruments would you have found in the cockpit of a fighter plane from World War I?
11: Very little. You'd have had an altimeter, which would have told you approximately how high you were. They weren't particularly accurate. And you would have had a compass, which might have told you generally which direction you were going in. But for most World War I fighter pilots, perhaps the sun and its relative position to the time of day might have been more useful than that compass.
4: So how did that all change after World War One?
11: Scientists and people involved with airplanes always tried to take advances in technology and none more so in trying to communicate with the ground and to navigate and get from A to B. Um, The autopilot was a great invention. Strangely, the first autopilot was demonstrated in 1914, a very long time ago, actually before the Royal Air Force was, was formed. These days, if you're flying in an airplane, the pilot doesn't really touch the controls at all. He'll do the takeoff. He'll, generally speaking, do the landing, although there is an auto landing system, once the is safely in the air, the autopilot will be engaged and the autopilot will take you up to height. The flight management system will guide you through the airways and point you in the direction you need to go. And actually, the pilot could completely go to sleep. The aeroplane would find its own way there with very modern avionics and would even land itself.
4: So hopefully they won't be going to sleep. If we look for like fast forward to World War II, How did cockpits change then?
11: They didn't really change very much. They had a few more instruments, blind flying instruments, so that pilots could find their way down and fly accurately in cloud. First World War, visual flying only. You need to see the ground. And if you couldn't see the ground, you were in a great deal of trouble. So they had blind flying instruments and the great aid was a radio because with the with the radio in the cockpit, somebody on the ground could tell you where to go, and radar had been invented. Jack called Robert Watson Watt invented radar between um, 1915 and 1935, and that was able to guide fighter aircraft to hostile aircraft. And the next stage was having airborne interception radar installed in fighter aircraft. So when you get guided to within a mile or so of, of the enemy, your own radar can then guide you to it, and you shoot it down.
4: Now we're looking at the newest fighter jet, the F-35. How have modern-day avionics progressed?
11: They are astonishingly accurate and amazing. For a start, the pilot is wearing a, a very high-tech helmet, and his primary flight instruments, as well as the whole battle scene of hostile aircraft, friendly aircraft, the assets around him are all projected on the inside of his visor, of his helmet. He turns his head one way or the other, he gets a different view, and the aircraft, which are hostile or not hostile, will appear on his visor where they are relative to him. The avionics are very complex, and one of the big issues in the past of avionics and aircraft is cooling. And If they weren't cooled sufficiently, they would be unreliable and they would fail. I remember flying in lightning aircraft, the earlier English electric lightning aircraft, where the mean time between failure on the radar set was about 40 minutes, which wasn't very good. And it was all to do with cooling and the thing heating up. On modern combat aircraft, the avionics are absolutely reliable. They last forever, as they do on airliners and modern passenger jets. The other significant difference with modern air combat is the support you're provided by a number of other assets. There might be an airborne early warning aircraft, which is maintaining the whole battle scene. You're being controlled by it. You're communicating through it. You're able to find your own targets. Somebody on the ground might send you a message through a secure data link saying, Here is the position of a target, you can identify it from your cockpit, you can then launch a particular missile, perhaps a laser-guided bomb or a missile against it, and people in your headset will be watching exactly what you're doing. And the next step is almost asking permission, may I engage this particular target, and a voice will say, yes you can, or no you can't, conversely.
4: Now, there's obviously a lot of connection and, and communication there, and you said that there's this secure link that that information is sent through. What if it isn't? Is there a risk that these F 35s are, are too high tech? Is there a risk of cyber attacks?
11: There's always a risk of cyber attack, and the cyber attack will come in many different ways. It'll be attacking the, the ground stations, the radars that are giving you vital information, but it's measures and countermeasures. And if people are trying to undermine our capability and cyber attack what we're doing, we're deploying measures to counter that. And there's a huge amount of research going on into, into that whole area, most of which I hate to add, is very highly classified.
4: <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us, Terry. And thank you to our other guests this week, Justin Burrows, Peter Halford and Dave Ansell. Ladies and gentlemen, Now power on your electronic devices.
5: We wish you a pleasant onward journey and please fly with the Naked Scientists again. Good job they said you can keep your electronic devices on, otherwise um, we wouldn't have had a show. Now we've got just time for a little bit of duty-free shopping in the Question of the Week department to finish this week. And Isabel Cochran has got this answer for Tuomo.
7: Does your brain respond differently when you're listening to an audiobook compared when you're reading a book? And does this affect how much details you can remember?
9: On the forum, Thomas reckons that the main difference is that in each case there is activity in different areas of the brain. Evan, on the other hand, is more concerned about our safety.
13: If you're listening to an audiobook while driving your car, I hope there are at least some periods of time when your attention's focused entirely on the driving.
9: But what do the experts think? I spoke to Dr Matt Davis from the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge.
14: Reading and listening involve different senses. Each of these connects to a different part of the brain. Things that you see are processed in visual cortex at the back of the brain, whereas things that you hear are processed by auditory cortex, which sits on the side of the brain above the ears. There are other parts of the brain that also make specific contributions to reading or listening, such as the parts of the brain that control movements of the eyes, or those that maintain attention when listening.
9: So, the simplest answer to the question is yes, your brain does respond differently in reading and listening, because sensory signals from the eyes and the ears make different portions of the brain light up.
14: But when it comes down to processing the meaning of written and spoken sentences, we see that many of the same parts of the brain are involved, regardless of where the information comes from. The same brain systems seem to be involved in accessing the meaning of written and spoken words. But understanding what you read requires more than just knowing the words. Comprehending a story requires you to build a mental model of what is going on. Your mental model for the story that you're reading or listening to is critical for being able to remember it. Otherwise, the story would be a series of disconnected sentences that will not linger in your memory.
9: So is there any reason to think that listening to an audiobook or reading a book might be better for remembering the story?
14: Assuming that comprehension is equivalent in reading and listening, we might expect retention to be similar. However, when a story is difficult to follow, think Dostoyevsky rather than Dan Brown, having the opportunity to revisit tricky sections could be helpful. In this respect, reading might offer some advantages over listening. Readers can easily move their eyes back up the page to reread text that they misunderstood first time around. At the same time, anyone who finds reading difficult, young children or individuals with dyslexia, might retain more from listening to an audiobook. The additional effort involved in reading the words uses mental resources that they would otherwise need for comprehension and memory.
9: So there you go. And if you're having trouble remembering this explanation, then reading the transcript of our show might just help. Thanks again to Dr Matt Davis for that. Next week, we're figuring out our footprint with this question from Charlie.
13: What is the minimum area required to sustain one human being in terms of oxygen and
11: food?
4: If you have any thoughts on what a human being's fair share might be, you can email chris at com. find us on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientist. And there's also our forum, so do join in the conversation there. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum.
5: And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much to Marika Ottman who put the programme together and do join us next week when we'll be marking the 40th birthday of Louise Brown. She was the world's first test tube baby. We'll be speaking to the scientists, the doctors, the IVF patients and also Louise Brown herself about the science of assisted conception and the key players that made it all possible 40 years ago. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.